Good evening, everyone. And uh, thank you, Ruth. Uh, I, I need to warn you, I'm about to sing. Okay, I, I kind of need to issue that warning up front. And there's a couple of reasons for issuing that warning. Uh, one is probably Simon, you need to turn off the recording. Just for, I'm only going to sing five words. And the reason I'm going to do this is I'm going to sing five words and then you're going to complete the rest of the song. Okay, now some of you are really looking at me as, as if I have completely lost it, which is true. And the only reason I'm doing this is because my two older daughters are actually in clay. Uh, Kristen loves me no matter what I do, don't you, Kristen? Whereas the other two would be completely embarrassed. So are you ready? Ready? So you need to finish this line, all right? All we are saying is... That was rubbish. Absolutely rubbish. Right. Who released that as a single? Beatles? Actually, not originally. It was released as a single by the Plastic Uno Band. Uh, obviously, Yugo Ono, because it was a single written by John Lennon and then subsequently released by the Beatles. But tonight what we're going to do is we're going to look at a short section of the New Testament where the writer picks up similar sentiments, although his motivation and his context are very, very different from John Lennon's and Yugo Ono's, who actually wrote that song in bed on their honeymoon during their two-week protest over the war, particularly the war in Vietnam. But the person that we're going to read the lyrics of tonight was set in a very different place. And his motivation for saying, give peace a chance, was very, very different. In terms of our Essential Word series, our E100 readings, this is actually the shortest reading in the entire book. There are only eight verses in what we're going to read tonight, but they are eight verses packed with content and crammed with information regarding day-to-day Christian living. There is something very practical and very, very earthy about tonight's text. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Now, could somebody tell me what page it is? 1180. Thanks, Richard. You're always first to do that. That's impressive. 1180 in the Bibles that are in the pews. And we're just going to read from verses 2 to 9. But before we go there, let me show you a verse from the, the first chapter of this letter. And am I ringing a wee bit? Simon, can you turn me down a wee tiny bit? Because I, I kind of hear a bit of feedback. Uh, I want to read you just a, a verse from the very first chapter, which, which kind of captures Paul's heart. For the church at Philippi and for the Christians in that place. And I'm absolutely convinced that this is Paul's desire for us as a church. And for every single follower of Jesus Christ, every disciple. Here it is. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, how you and I live on a day-to-day basis, really matters. Our our conduct counts. Our our behaviour, our attitudes, our words and our actions are really, really important. Because they can either do one of two things. 
They can confirm our faith, or else they can call it into question. And so whenever Paul was writing to this church in Philippi, he said, listen, whatever happens, please make sure that you conduct yourself in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a very heart-searching comment. But let's read what he says later on in his letter. We'll stand, as usual, for the public reading of God's word. Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 to 9. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Please take a seat. See, in Philippians 4, there's clearly a problem. There has been a breakdown in relationship. Two ladies within the church community have fallen out. Two ladies who have worked and ministered and served alongside not only each other, but alongside the apostle in the cause of the gospel. And Paul feels the need to speak into this situation because surely here is a classic example of conduct unworthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ because the gospel of Jesus Christ is about love and forgiveness and acceptance and peace and reconciliation and Paul needs to speak quickly Because as we all know, these things are far, far better dealt with sooner rather than later. Otherwise, the potential for long-term damage and ongoing bitterness is far more likely. There is a real risk, if you leave it, that resentment solidifies. And we've all seen it happen. Plus, and maybe this is the, the tragic dimension of all relational breakdown and tension between Christians, because remember, this is what this is specifically about, tension and relational breakdown between Christians. But the tragic dimension to this is that if it's not sorted, and if it's not addressed, and if it's not dealt with, then it's the gospel that suffers. It's the gospel that suffers. And the truth of what we then stand up and claim is questionable. And so Paul pleads with these ladies that they would agree 
with each other, that they would be of the same mind, that they would overcome their dispute, whatever that dispute is. But in his wisdom, Paul asks someone else to help them through this process of reconnecting. Now, we have no clue who that someone else is. You'll see from verse 3 that this person is referred to in some translations as my loyal yoke fellow or loyal comrade. But in many ways, the identity of this person is irrelevant to the story. The important lesson to learn from this is that there are times whenever the input of a trusted third party is vital whenever there is a breakdown between Christians. That's what it means, I believe, to be part of a community. And so Paul asks this person, and he's very direct, please help these women. Another thing to bear in mind here is that this letter is written to the whole church family. And so this dispute is brought out into the open. It's actually highlighted publicly. Now clearly that raises a number of potential issues and I'm not going to go there nor do I want to. But if nothing else, what we discover here is that these kind of disputes, whenever there is tension between two Christians, it is not simply a private matter. It is a matter for the entire church to deal with. And as we work towards and protect our unity, there may be times whenever we've got to involve everyone, whenever there is a breakdown between two of us. That seems to be the teaching here. But the other significant aspect of Paul's plea is this little phrase that's going to appear time and time again. Be of the same mind. Agree with each other in the Lord. Because the point is you're Christians. You're sisters in the Lord. Therefore, you must seek unity. You believe in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that Lordship of Jesus Christ must impact every single area of your lives, including your relationships with one another. Otherwise, you cannot claim Jesus as Lord. Because if they fall out, which they clearly have done, and if they allow that to be the case, then the point is this. What does that say about your faith? What does that say about your faith if you don't address this? At a human level, yes, let it fester. Hang on to the bitterness. Seek revenge, hold a grudge. That's the natural response. That's the normal reaction to relational tension. But as people who are, and here's this, in the Lord, it shouldn't be like that. Because disunity in a local church is not only distressing, disturbing, even toxic, it's also wrong. Whatever happens, Paul says, whatever happens, as he starts his letter, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Each of us is responsible for our own conduct. Ladies, he says, don't just give peace a chance. Make peace. Sort this out. And if you're here this evening and there is a dysfunctional relationship with another brother or sister in the Lord that needs attention, then the real question that 
I've got to face, you've got to face, is what is my conduct in this? How am I behaving? How am I living? Now, as Paul deals with this particular problem, he then turns to what seems like the real final command that he wants to end the letter with. And in a sense, you discover that he trims his language to a bare minimum. And therefore, I hope you picked it up as I I read the text. They're just short little sentences. There's not a lot of additional padding out. Just short little sentences. Pithy sentences. But here was the big headline. Everything comes under this. Rejoice in the Lord always. We've sang it this evening. I will say it again. Rejoice. Now what's really important for us to recognize is is the context of the people that this was written to. Because the Philippians were living, or rather they were suffering under opposition. They knew and they were experiencing persecution. And yet the challenge and the encouragement from Paul was rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, in the good times, in the bad times. And again, for Paul, this is what it means to live in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, whatever happens to you. But notice the key phrase again. In the Lord. Don't rejoice in your circumstances. Don't rejoice in what you're going through. That would be completely mad. But rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because if you rejoice in the Lord, you will know real joy, deep joy, an abiding joy that actually lasts no matter what you're going through. So what does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? Well, one aspect of this is to celebrate in the Lord. And in Paul's context and his culture, that kind of rejoicing would have meant Uh, what we would call public celebration. To publicly celebrate who Jesus is. To declare his greatness. And that's why for me, corporate praise is so important. Because when we gather together and unite our voices and sing about Jesus and about who Jesus is and about what he has done, then that's what is involved in rejoicing in the Lord. When we meet around this table in a moment or two, and we eat, and we drink, and we remember, we are rejoicing in the Lord, in who he is, and in what he has done for us. And so we do this against whatever backdrop. In the midst of whatever is going on in and around our lives, We rejoice at all times. And so even when you are surrounded by rubbish, and I know some of you are, and whenever you are going through a really tough time in your life, then it's so important that you still gather together to worship, to sing, to pray, to eat, to drink, to remember. And that joy should characterize us as Christians, but so should the next comment that Paul makes. Let your gentleness be evident to all. You see, the public image of a church, here's how I believe every church should be known. As a joyful but gentle, gracious community. 
Whenever a church is bland, dull, harsh, judgmental and unforgiving, there is something desperately wrong. We are to rejoice in the Lord always. That's what people are to recognize about us. No matter what we are going through. Even though at a surface level everything could be falling apart. We know what it means to rejoice. We know what it means to publicly celebrate in God. And our gentleness is then evident to all. Am I a gentle person? Am I reasonable? Am I fair-minded? Am I charitable? Not just in relation to you, but Paul says, let your gentleness be evident to all. A watching world. And then Paul draws attention to three really important values. And I want to leave these with you. Prayer, which overcomes anxiety. Patterns of thought that celebrate God's goodness through creation. And a style of life that embodies the gospel. Now let me just break these down for a moment. Paul starts by saying this. Don't be anxious about anything. Now that's really, really hard, isn't it? Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, pray. But have a look at the previous verse, verse 5, as to what it says. The Lord is near. And so you see, we live with an assurance of the constant presence of God. He's he's right here. He's right there. He's in close proximity. And therefore, Paul says, we should talk to him. Communicate with him on a regular, consistent basis. Take those things that weigh heavily on your mind tonight. And I'll guarantee you there are many of us here tonight and that there are things weighing heavily in our minds as we maybe even think about tomorrow, this week that lies ahead. Take those worries, take those anxieties, take those concerns, says Paul, and pray. In fact, Paul says pray in every situation. Pray about every single area of your life. If it matters to you, it matters to God. But notice we are to pray with thanksgiving. Yes, nothing is too trivial for God. Nothing in every situation. But remember to pray with thanksgiving. So as you bring your requests, make sure you also express your thanks to God. And what is the outcome, Paul says? And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Do you know... It seems that if we take this and believe this, then we can experience an inner sense of contentment supplied by God that, humanly speaking, is hard to explain. In fact, we'll find it very difficult to explain it to our neighbours, to our colleagues, to our friends. That even in the midst of mayhem, even in the midst of what has fallen apart in our lives, Because we bring those issues to God in prayer, we know a deep inner peace and contentment that makes no sense at all. And I love how Tom Wright puts this in his popular commentary on Philippians. He says, prayer like that will mean that God's peace, not a stoic lack of concern, but a deep peace in the middle of life's problems and storms will guard your heart and mind like a squadron of soldiers looking after a treasure chest. 
how is, and this is something we, we think, thought about this morning, how is your prayer life at the moment? Prayer, as I said this morning, is a mystery. We don't exactly know how it works, and yet it's a deeply practical thing to do. Is there a constant, consistent dialogue with the Lord who is near, right beside you, right with you? Do you take everything to the Lord in prayer, in every situation, with prayer and petition? Do you present your request to God? Could there be a direct correlation between my lack of prayer and my lack of peace at the moment? Those are just some questions to to take away for further reflection. Prayer. Paul then turns to a list of virtues. And he urges the Philippians to think about these things. And let's be honest, these things that Paul lists, they break the mould. They break the mould of what we spend or we are encouraged to spend a lot of our time thinking about. Read any newspaper, listen to any radio news programme and their stock and trade at the moment is generally anything that is untrue or unholy or unjust or impure or ugly or of ill repute or vicious and blameworthy. Our minds are under constant assault to think about negative things. We're bombarded with negativity. And Paul says, whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy, think about these things. And you know, those kinds of things are all around us. All around us in God's world. Great things to think about. Beautiful things to enjoy. Fantastic things to celebrate and consider. And we as Christians don't have a monopoly on them. As Frank uh, Thielman in his commentary on Philippians says this, The modern church should applaud and learn from unbelieving expressions of truth and beauty. Mature Christians should feel no compulsion to read only literature written by other Christians, to view only movies and plays that fellow believers have produced, or to listen only to Christian music. Paul urges believers to discover and learn from the true, noble, right, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy, wherever it occurs. You may want to pick up on that. But let me add a writer. Because as Christians, we have a touchstone when it comes to this. When it comes to what is true and what is good, we do have a measure to hold up against every moral expression that we encounter. By all means, engage and enjoy and learn and celebrate, but at the same time, we've got to ensure that our minds are seeped in Scripture. Because God's Word is our touchstone. Because then you will be able to approach the values of an unbelieving world with a critical eye. And you will be able to discern between what is good, really, truly, honestly good, and just what appears to be good. But is in fact in subtle ways not good. And Paul urges the Christians at Philippi and he urges us to develop and to guard patterns of thought that celebrate God's goodness and creation. And it's all around us. And so as you go about your week, just think about those things that are good.
that you see all around you, that you read about, that you listen to? What are we filling our minds with? What are we spending our time thinking? And then finally, as we come to verse 9, Paul says something amazing. And I don't know if, if any of the rest of us could ever say this. It's, it's one of the most ethical comments we find anywhere in the Bible. Not so much for those who receive it, though there's no doubt about that, but for the person who gives it. Here's what Paul says. Whatever you've learned, whatever you've received, whatever you've heard from me or seen in me, get this. Paul says, put it into practice. Which of us, as I say, could come up here and say, listen, if you want to know what it means to be a Christian, if you want to know what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then just do as I do. See, if I was to stand up here and say that, I'll guarantee you some of you would think, David, that's arrogant. It's really, really arrogant for you to stand up there and say to a congregation, listen folks, see whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, just go out this week and put it into practice. And it reminds me of something similar that Paul said, and this is how I I can come to terms with what Paul has said here. Because there is part of me that wants to react to this. But you see, in another one of Paul's letters, he said this. Follow my example, church. Or as another translation would put it, be be imitators of me. But how does that sentence finish? Somebody help me out. Follow my example. That's it. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. You see, Paul didn't just live for Jesus. And and I really love this idea. And and in fact, if you remember nothing else that I say, just remember this. Paul didn't just live for Jesus. He lived like Jesus. And that's a massive challenge. Because sometimes I look at my life, and I'll be really honest with you, I would claim I'm living for Jesus. But am I living like Jesus? That's, that's a much more heart-searching one. And so in Philippi, Paul could write this with integrity. Why could he write this with integrity? Because you see, everything that he taught, gave, said and done flowed out of a Christ-like life. It came from a place of recognizing that Jesus was his model. It came out of a style of life that embodied the gospel. And so as I close, before I hand back to Ruth, let's go back to that verse. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do we do that? Well, listen, here we, here's, here's a number of ways how you do that based on what we've looked at. In your relationships, your relationships amongst one another, there should be no division. That, that's how you conduct yourself in a, a manner worthy of the gospel. There should be no disunity. There should be no falling out or bitterness. And if there is then get it resolved. In our approach or in our perspective on life, what should it be? Rejoice always. Rejoice always. In our approach to life, pray about everything. 
The Lord's near. You don't be anxious about anything. In our thinking, dwell on the good. Consider the goodness you encounter throughout God's creation. And finally, in our discipleship generally, live a life that embodies the gospel. And then, what is Paul's promise in a sense in all of this? And the God of peace will be with you. And so, what I'm really saying tonight is, don't give peace a chance. Instead, give the God of peace a chance. And then true peace will be your experience and it will be well as we're about to sing with your soul.